Ontology, the Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Season 3 Pandemics and Beyond Episode 1 Dense but Homogeneous Populations the history of infectious diseases is a very short one. Infectious diseases, like cockroaches, are strictly civilized phenomena that were essentially unable to spread among primitive tribes, as settlements then were too sparse. In prehistoric times, when mankind was scattered in small groups of a few dozen or a few hundred people, the spectrum of disease was very different from today and was basically dominated by traumatic and parasitic diseases. Back then, infectious diseases that modern people consider to be important were almost non-existent, as the likelihood of people coming into close contact was very low. If an outbreak of infectious disease did occur, only a small tribe of a few dozen people would die out before they had a chance to come into contact with the rest of the world. Most infectious germs are younger than the history of Homo sapiens. Tuberculosis, for example, first appeared in ancient Egypt, probably mainly because of the dense agricultural population that came in Egypt. As a result of cattle farming, Mycobacterium bovis, originally a causative agent of tuberculosis in cattle, became zoonotic before eventually evolved into Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacterium which causes tuberculosis in humans. AIDS is said to be traced to the microecology of human-monkey cohabitation in Africa, and only changed its nature when it spread worldwide. Syphilis came from the Americas and is pretty much all the same. The spread of infectious diseases requires densely inhabited conditions, which is tantamount to requiring civilization itself. Civilization has the innate concept of a dense population. The luxurious communal baths of Rome, for example, were a source of globalized epidemics under Roman rule. The early Christian missionaries decried the licentious lifestyle of the Romans. Two of the condemned depravities were incomprehensible to modern men because of the revival of part of Greek culture, one was the way Greco-Roman athletes doing sports naked with only olive oil covering their body, the other was the luxurious, jewel-studded baths used by the Romans. Promiscuity is understood by modern people to be a purely moral concept, but surely in the time of Abraham, or at least in the time of the Pharisees, it must have had an implication of susceptibility to infectious diseases. Only after the popularity of Christianity promiscuity gradually became abstracted and came to be understood as referring primarily to a spiritual issue. Yet the ancients had a much more realistic viewpoint than us. In their mind promiscuity surely covered loathsome diseases, many of which were skin diseases, much like the malady afflicted Job who sat in a pile of ashes and scraped himself with a tile for sores. The Greeks used olive oil as a cure-all for skin diseases, which is one reason why olive oil and the olive tree were particularly important in Greek culture. The public baths were obscene, because, on the one hand, it was extravagance, unnecessary and excessive enjoyment, on the other hand, could be the source of epidemics caused by the gathering of large numbers of people. The public baths survived for a while after the fall of the Roman Empire but eventually died out largely by the time of the Crusaders. The Black Death contributed greatly to the demise of the public baths, as it strongly supported the otherwise empty moral condemnation of the missionaries. The prohibition of eating pork in the time of Abraham, for example, 
and later extended to the Pharisees' set of dietary taboos, such as one must wash one's hands before dining and failure to do so was ungodly, must also have had a very important connection with the initial development of pig farming in Mesopotamia and the epidemics of densely populated cities. The gradual domestication of the pig from a wild creature to a creature that eats human waste would have turned the pig into a major source of infection. And the kind of lifestyle that Abraham advocated, in which cattle and sheep or the main food and pork was avoided and so on and so forth, was also instrumental in stopping infectious diseases. But it is conceivable that many of these sweeping changes in lifestyle that were considered at the time to be religious or political reforms were really just changing one infectious disease into another. There was actually no way to solve the underlying problem unless the density of the human race was greatly reduced. One byproduct of civilization is that it allows its certain beneficiary groups, such as those that first invented agriculture, to breed in large numbers with relatively homogeneous genotypes, and as a result create a susceptible population in an epidemiological sense. Genetic diversity is the only reliable way to ward off infectious diseases. The more homogeneous the gene pool, the larger the population of a single gene, then the greater the likelihood of an outbreak of infectious disease. Whereas civilizations, including, for example, the so-called prosperous or peaceful ages defined by the historical records of China, were characterized by a population explosion of several or even several dozen times after a period of war at the beginning of the dynasty. Such population booms were genetically homogeneous, so they were particularly prone to massive epidemics such as those at the end of the Han or Yuan dynasties, which left 9 out of 10 households empty. This kind of extinction is a phenomenon unique to the civilized world. The primitive tribesmen, for example, were not easily afflicted with so many deaths, because their genetic strains were more diverse. It is often the case that the genetic diversity of the primitive inhabitants of prehistoric times with a relatively small population is greater than that of civilizations with huge populations. As a result, civilizations with large sedentary populations are particularly vulnerable to mass extinctions when struck by epidemics. The phenomenon of extinction is only a threat to genetically homogeneous groups, showing the superiority of genetic diversity. There is no directionality in evolution, no directionality in the unknown. What is right and what is not, that is a question of chances. The only safe strategy in the evolutionary sense is to preserve as much diversity as possible and not to put your eggs in the same basket. You really don't know which of the various choices being made at the moment is really the right one. The one that maintains the most diversity will inherit the future, because although it will lose some things, it will not lose everything. The most homogeneous part seems to enjoy a long period of peace and prosperity, but in a single crisis it will be wiped out. The areas most prone to mass extinction are the most homogeneous. The Europeans actually gained a lot through the Black Death. This included the rise of labor in the old feudal power system, the gradual elevation of the rich peasant class into the gentry, and expensive labor necessitated the path dependence of a technological revolution that might otherwise have been unprofitable or without the prospect of large scale. Ultimately, the success of public campaigns against pandemics is at the cost of the erosion of social diversity. A place with a high level of social diversity could not produce effective public prevention against the pandemic, nor does it need that. The Black Death actually exterminated those that would not abandon the original culture of the urban public life of the Roman Empire. 
This section of the population was highly overlapping with the despicable pagans that Christianity condemned, shaping the social traditions and consolidated the strong class base of the dispersed small communities of Europeans. It was quite useful both for the genetic diversity and for the political diversity of Europe. Civilization is unable to eradicate contagion, only to gain a temporary advantage in the arms race between mankind and the bacteriophage. The period after World War II, the period one call the penicillin era, was a time when mainstream medicine thought that infectious diseases were a thing of the past until the advent of AIDS largely shattered their illusions. Human security is, to put it bluntly, an eternal race, against death, as the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland declares, it takes all the running you can do, to keep in the same place. Not that you can ever outrun your enemy. You can at best even score in the endless war against bacterias and viruses. The ceaseless emergence of plagues keeps wiping out susceptible populations, causing the plague itself to meet a natural barrier in the next stage of its spread until a new plague breaks out and the game keeps unfolding. So the issue of infectious diseases is essentially a political issue. Eradicating all infectious diseases simply cannot be done, all you can do is to eradicate a particular disease only to blaze the trail for another one. The reforms of social norms and lifestyle in order to cope with infectious diseases are inherently political. In reality, it only alters the spectrum of diseases curbing one infectious disease, in favor of other infectious diseases. Empires have always been conducive to infectious diseases. Most of the contagious diseases recorded in history were closely associated with states, especially empires, that have large populations on vast lands. Because the interest of empires lies in cutting down barriers to transport and the flow of information. Therefore empires, or any attempt at human unity, could turn what would otherwise be a local disease into a global pandemic. AIDS is a typical case, which could not have traveled out of Africa until the 18th century. As of this moment, somewhere in New Guinea, Brazil or India unknown to us, there are countless viruses that have a better chance than AIDS of breaking out unexpectedly with increased human communication. The very notion of empire and globalization is a matter of cost, which presupposes that the cost of globalization, or the cost of imperial rule, is lower than that of the original small and localized communities. The risk, and uncertain risk at that, represented by infectious diseases renders the decentralized structure of humanity as an insurance arrangement, challenging the legitimacy of the concept of cost in relation to the hedging of risk. If globalization allows you to reduce costs, whereby one product, partly outsourced to India, partly outsourced to Dongguan in China and partly supplied by Germany and Japan, with only the head office in the US, is cheaper than having the whole production line in the US, then an unforeseen outbreak of an epidemic in India, China or wherever, sends local freight costs suddenly skyrocketing, wouldn't all that money you made be lost overnight? Then how do you estimate various risks? The answer is that you cannot, simply because no one can calculate the unknown. The risk of infectious disease is just a glimpse of the great unknown world in which we live. No one can really manage risk effectively, the unknown is always greater than the known which gets bigger as the known area expands. A larger known area does not mean a reduction in risk, but an increase of the unknown realm to which the known area is exposed. Hence the increase in knowledge increases the risk instead. Every expansion of the territory of knowledge turns a risk that did not exist before into one now. Or to use a political term, what was not a problem can become very problematic. 
The old cowpox vaccine was the greatest example of the success of vaccination, but nowadays it would cause major controversy because it is very unsafe by current vaccine standards. To what extent can you accept the exchange of an uncertain risk for the elimination of an existing certain risk? It is impossible to judge. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.